0: chapter 63, Isaiah chapter 63. And with the scripture open before us, let's pray. Let's ask God to come and speak to us through his truth this evening. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the lessons that we derive from Scripture. And as we come to think about what you would have to say to us in the gospel, that you would work upon hearts, we pray and we call for the infilling of the Spirit of the living God. And we pray for that help and that assistance that thou alone canst provide, that thy Spirit would work and strive in the heart, men, women, young people, boys and girls. Father, we pray for Thy help now. May the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart, be acceptable in Thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Amen. This evening, we are going to take these last three words of Isaiah sixty-three, and the verse one: "mighty to save, mighty to save." Does this not sum up the gospel message? Does this not state as simply as we possibly can do so what the function of the church is that we present a Savior who is mighty to save? The opening verses of Isaiah chapter 63, they show us Christ. And they show us Christ as a, a great and a mighty Warrior, one that is fighting an intense battle, a battle in which his very garments are soaked in blood. The warrior here is compared to someone who's treading the wine press. And the juice of the grape was produced by people who went in amongst the grapes. The grapes were all put into the great wine fat, and then people would have went in in their bare feet, and they would have trod the grapes and trampled in the grapes until the grape was crushed, and then the juice would have flowed away into a, a separate tank in order to produce the wine. And one can only but begin to imagine what the person would have looked like in amongst the grapes, treading the grapes, and the garments would have been stained with the, the juice of the grape. And of course, if the grapes were red grapes, it would have looked so much like blood stains. And here, the Savior describes himself as one who's treading the winepress, but he has to tread the winepress alone. Many people would have gone into the the vat the, the, that, that was full of, uh, full of grapes at that particular time, and uh, the, the, the grapes would have been constantly harvested at that time, and it was a, a constant work, a hard work, a constant work, but there were many engaged in that work. But here we have the Savior, and he's in this wine press, and he's there alone, and his garments are stained with blood. And it is evident that this work that he is doing, trumpling the wine press, as a great warrior, because it's not merely one that is treading the grapes that is being presented here, but one that is fighting a battle and the garments are literally stained with blood. But all of these pictures are descriptive of how he accomplishes salvation. So, you, we look at verse 1, he's mighty to save. We look at verse 4, the year of my redeemed is come. So, it is evident that he's talking about grace. He's talking about redemption. He's talking about salvation. Verse 7, he goes on to talk about the loving kindnesses of the Lord, the praises of the Lord. In verse 8, he talks about the one who is the Savior. It is evident that the Lord here is unfolding God's great plan of salvation. But let's come back to this picture of the warrior treading the winepress, fighting a battle, appearing as someone whose garments are stained with the, the juice of the grape. When in reality it is the blood. And let's think about the wine press that he had to tread. Because the wine press was a place of of treading out, it was a place of crushing, it was a place of bruising. And here the Lord is in this wine press, but he's alone. He's alone. And verse five says, And I looked and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury had upheld me. So he's alone. And yet with his arm, he brings salvation. Where was the Lord when he was absolutely alone? There was none to help him. He was without anyone. Even his very father had turned away from him. His close disciples forsook him and fled. It was the cross. This is a picture of the cross. It's a picture of Calvary. And yet, verse 1, he is the warrior. He's coming up from Eden. He's glorious in his apparel. He's traveling in the greatness of strength. And yet his garments are stained with blood. This is the one who fought the greatest battle of all. He was bruised. He was crushed at the winepress of Calvary. And there his blood was shed for you and for me. And there he died. And yet he laid down his life as the mighty one, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And yet we see him coming from the cross and we see him coming from the empty tomb. He's triumphant because he triumphed over death, he triumphed over the curse of God's law. He conquered as the all-conquering Savior in order that He might bring us salvation. Because the year of my redeemed has come. And so Isaiah here, through God's grace and inspiration, is looking forward to the cross, seeing that great work that was accomplished on Calvary's center tree when Jesus Christ was mighty to see And this is what we're going to think about tonight. How Christ, the warrior of Calvary, who trod the winepress of God's wrath, whose blood was shed for us, we're going to think about how he is mighty to save. And there's three words here I just want to bring before you. Three very simple gospel words. Going to think about the word saved, we're going to think about the word mighty, and then we're going to think about the word faith. And let's think about this word saved, first of all. He's he's mighty to save. It's a word we often use to describe someone that is a born-again believer. A person is saved. It's a good word, it's a biblical word. Because this world is divided into those that are saved and Those that are not saved. Take away all of the means by which people try and divide humanity, whether it be cultural or ethnic or language or class or religious. It all means nothing. There are people who are saved and there are people who are not saved. And this division is real. It exists within families, sadly. There are those within a family saved, and there are those that are not saved. It exists in towns and communities. It exists in islands. It exists in nations. It exists in the world. There are those that are saved and those that are not saved. And you need to figure out before God where you're at tonight. You may say, I know. I know I'm not saved. Do you really? Because if you really knew in your heart that you weren't saved, you would not leave this place tonight till you had made your peace with God. The fact is, it has never hit you what it means not to be saved. It is the most marvelous thing in the world to know that you're saved. It's the most catastrophic tragedy ever could befall a man or a woman not to be saved and to go out of this life into God's eternity not saved and so in this meeting tonight there are people that are saved and there are people that are not saved where are you? where are you positioned there? how is it with your soul? are you ready to meet God? if death were to come tonight where would you spend eternity? eternity That's the question of questions. Are you saved? There's no more important question than this. No more important question to face in your heart and mind and soul than this. Are you saved? Because ultimately you'll stand before God one day. It'll be clear what you are. And he knows and he knows now. And you know. And so we're going to think about this word, saved. What does it mean to be saved? We use this word. We use it regularly to describe a person who knows the Lord. We use it to challenge those that don't know the Lord. But what does it mean to be saved? Well, I think there's a number of ways we can understand this word, saved. And every one of them carries... Tremendous truth. And in each case, the word saved defines what we've been saved from and what we're saved to, what we once were and what we are and what we will be. So there's an eternal and there's a spiritual meaning to the word saved. The eternal and spiritual meaning of the word saved means that the person that's saved is delivered from hell. We're going down the valley towards the grave. And without the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, the bottom of that valley is hell itself. And that's your destination. The Scripture says that the wages of sin is death. When the scripture says the wages of your sin is death, it's saying what you deserve is death. But it's not talking about dying as in being put into a coffin and lowered into a grave. It's talking about eternal death. It's talking about the place where the worm dieth not, where the fire is not quenched. And the soul that sinneth it shall die. And that soul will end up in God's hell if that sin has not been dealt with by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for every person who dies, who doesn't know Christ, that person, as instantaneously as they die, and shut their eyes in death and breathe their last, they open their eyes in hell. And there's no deliverance then. And so, the person that's saved is delivered from hell. And hell is eternal. Uh, And there's no way of getting out. There's no escape. Once a soul is there, a soul remains there. And so, it is so important that you're delivered from hell. That's got to be the most important thing that could ever drive a man or a woman in their thinking to know that when the end comes in this life that I am saved from hell. And so to be saved is to be delivered from hell. But it also means deliverance to heaven. Because, thank God, there's two sides to that coin. There is hell and there is heaven. And God has made the, both of those places. Both of those places glorify Him. Both of those places honor Him. Because God is honored through hell. Because it's a place of justice, and God is a ple- God of justice. And the law of God must be appeased. The law that we break must be appeased. And so, if your sin is not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, you must go to hell. There's no other way for it. God is honored there because His laws, His laws glorified. But for the person whose sins are covered with the blood of Christ, that person will close their eyes in death. And that person will suddenly be translated into a place of endless delight. Heaven, a city bathed in light where there is happiness all of the time. And there is no sorrow there. And that's what the soul is saved to. So we're talking here about destinations. I've said this is the eternal and spiritual significance of the word saved. We're talking about the eternal destination of your soul. Heaven or hell, where are you bound? Thank God the Christian can say with certainty and with delight and with happiness, I know that I'm saved. I know that if I never see the light of another morning, I'll be in heaven. As one dear saint of God said to me one time, as she said, farewell, if I don't see you down here, I'll see you up there. And that's how it is, you know. We're part of a great family, a family that ultimately will never be broken asunder, because we'll be in heaven together. That's what the Christian is saved to. There's another significance of this word saved. There is what I call a judicial significance. The word judicial refers to law, I've already referred to this. I want to just talk about it in a little bit more detail. The soul that is saved is delivered from the penalty. And hell is a place where the sinner suffers the penalty, the penalty that we deserve. But the soul that is delivered from that penalty is delivered to justification. God doesn't just pardon a sinner. You know what pardon means. If someone has broken the law and they're guilty... They're pardoned. That means they can walk free. It still means they've been guilty. That guilty charge can never be reversed. The proof that that person has committed those kinds of crimes can never be erased. The fact that that person has committed those crimes can never be undone. But they're pardoned. They just won't suffer the consequences. But the rest of it has remained there. The record still remains. But justification is better than pardon. Because justification makes us as if we had never sinned at all, justifies us. It erases all of the sin. It wipes the slate absolutely clean. Our sins are put so far away, we are told that they will never ever be cast up against us. They are put as far away as the east is from the west. And that is why Paul wrote, there is therefore now no condemnation no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That's what it is to be justified. It means to be able to stand before the righteous God, knowing that I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be saved. And one day we'll all meet the righteous God. There is a moral significance to this word saved as well. The word moral relates to where we're at now. Relates to the the lifestyle that we live today. There's a moral significance to this word saved. You know, sin is a polluting thing. Sin destroys lives, it pollutes lives, it perverts minds. Sin is such an evil thing. And sin gets a grip of a man or a woman and drags them down. Gives them a distorted view of what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong. Sin can be so addictive. So destructive. Whenever a soul is saved, that soul morally is saved from the terrible pollutions of sin. And that soul is delivered unto holiness. A better life in this world. The Lord Jesus Christ, he prayed for his people. He said in John chapter 17, sanctify them through thy word. Sanctify them, improve them, make them better. Purify them through the word. The word of God is sometimes likened to a, a cleansing agent, the water of the word. As we apply ourselves to the Word, as the Word is applied to our hearts, we learn how to live. We learn how to obey God. We learn how to reject sin. And it has a cleansing effect, makes us better, makes us morally better. And so to be saved is to be saved from the pollution of sin and to be delivered onto the holiness of God's Word. And the Bible does say, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And so that is something we need to take seriously, those of us that are saved. Then, the word saved, it has an impact upon our perspective. Our perspective in this world. You see, if you're not saved, your case is hopeless. For you cannot save yourself. And there's no one in this room can save you. There's no one can help you. And so without God and without God's grace and without God's intervention, you're in a hopeless condition. Nothing to live for. Whatever a man or a woman may earn, whatever they may, whatever they may achieve, it all counts for nothing. Because what shall it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? But whenever we are saved, we're delivered from this hopelessness. And we're delivered to hope and purpose. The wise man, when writing the book of Proverbs, he said, In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Well, oh, just to know that direction, just to know that leading, just to know that purpose, just to know that God's directing me, just to know that God's leading me, When me acknowledge him. And that means for you, if you're not saved, you put your faith in Jesus Christ tonight as your Savior, you acknowledge Him, He will direct you. And you'll discover a purpose in this world you never thought existed. The perspective has changed, you see. And then this word saved, it relates to the physical as well. It relates to the physical. Perhaps this is the most wonderful of all. Yes, there is the spiritual, the eternal No hell, heaven. The judicial, no penalty, justified. The moral, delivered from sin to holiness. The perspective, no more hopelessness. Now I've got hope. But then, there's the physical. You see, Jesus Christ, he died on that cross. Not just for our souls. He died for the physical me and the physical you. He died for these bodies of ours. And and that great plan will be brought to fruition on the resurrection day when the trumpet sounds and Christ comes again, and every graveyard will be emptied, and the first people to rise will be Christian people, and they will come forth from those graves, and they'll be perfect. They will be ageless. They will be without any sign of infirmity. And they will be strong. They'll be the most glorious sight that any eye will ever see. The company of God's people, the great congregation of the saints from throughout the world, being gathered together as Christ comes to this world. And not only that, but this, this physical world will become a new world. The old world will be gone. There'll be a new world. A new heaven, a new earth. Wherein dwelleth righteousness, we are told. We know that in this old earth, there's not righteousness. We know there's injustice. And we know there's awful things happen. We know it's a broken place. It's a place suffering the effects of the curse. But oh, in the new world, with the new creation, and in these resurrected bodies, there'll be a place where there'll be no sorrow and no crying. There'll be a place where we'll be re- reunited with our loved ones. it will be a place of, of endless joy and delight throughout eternity. That's what we're saved to. You know, man has all his ideas about the future of the world. The economist has his ideas. The environmentalists, they've got their ideas. The politician, they've got their ideas. The United nations, they've got their ideas and their schemes, how they can make the world better. And you know something they will always fail Because here we are in the 21st century, and there's still bloodshed, and there's still fighting, and there's still inhumanity, and it's going on, it's continuing, and it's getting worse. But then one day Jesus will come and all of those injustices will be gone forever. And the lion then will lie down with the lamb. And there'll be no need for weapons. And it'll be the most wonderful paradise that ever was. And it'll be a day where the sun will never set. And we'll be with Christ forever. That is what we're saved to. And that's what we're going to enjoy. Delivered from the curse. Who wouldn't want that? You don't want it. You just leave this place tonight without Christ. I don't want that. I don't want this salvation. It's all a load of nonsense. You have to say it's a load of nonsense if you're going to turn away from it. But if you think that this is true, then you need to do something about it. You need to come to Christ and we know that you're saved. Let's move on. This word "saved." Have thought about that? Let's think about this word "mighty." He is mighty to save. He's mighty to save. Can you be saved tonight? Can you be saved on this evening, where you sit in that pew, where you're at at home, if you're joining us through the live stream? Can you be saved? regardless of what you've done, regardless of how you've rejected and neglected God in the past, you can be saved. Not because of you. Because of this Savior who is mighty to save. He has got the capability, the ability to save you now. That's what we are told here. You see, there's only one that is truly mighty to save. The church cannot save you. And your good works cannot save you, and your religious performances will never save you. But Jesus Christ can save you, and he will save you, because he is mighty to save. And this is what we're being taught here, that salvation is something that you can enjoy because of Jesus Christ. He is the one saviour, and he's the only saviour. Peter said, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. There is no other. But there's Jesus. We must be saved through him. We must be saved through him. No other name under heaven. Well, let us think about the matchless name of Jesus. He is the one Savior mighty to save you because he became a man for you. He was born of the Virgin Mary for you. He lived a perfect life for you. And then he died for you. The Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. Jesus Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Whenever he went to the darkness of the cross, he went there for you and for me. Truly we can say hallelujah. what a Savior. He is made to save because he has risen again. The resurrection is a reality because he lives. He defeated death. The resurrection lies at the heart of everything we preach and proclaim. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then is our faith vain. Then we have nothing to talk about. Then we have nothing to preach. Then we have no message. But the resurrection, I tell you, is a fact. It's an historic fact that Jesus Christ lives. And because he lives, there is hope beyond death. He's it to save because he prays for us tonight. He's at the right hand of God. We are told that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. And he saves to the uttermost all that come unto God by him. You come to God tonight through Jesus Christ. He's there at the right hand of God. He's praying for you. And he's saved to the very uttermost. He's mighty to save. And he's mighty because he's coming again. One day he'll bring all of time to a conclusion. The heavens will just be folded up and they'll be rolled together. And he'll come and every eye will see him. we will set up his great judgment. He'll establish a new heaven and a new earth. He'll establish a new order and an eternal order. And the holy city, the new Jerusalem, will come down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adored for her husband. And so we shall be ever... With the Lord. He's mighty to save. King of kings, Lord of lords. Oh, that this world would taste and see the riches of His grace. The arms of love that compass me would all mankind embrace. The news tomorrow morning will be filled with all kinds of things that are going on in the world, all kinds of things going on in society, but no news about Jesus. That's the tragedy of it all. But this is the news we have tonight. There's one message worth hearing. That Jesus Christ died, rose again, lives today, coming for you. Because he's mighty to save you. Let's think about faith. Mighty to save. If he is indeed mighty to save, then there is only one thing for you to do, and that is put your faith in him. And faith is a question of trust. Is he worth trusting? Can anyone else get rid of your sin? Can anyone else give you hope for eternity? Is there another you can turn to? Is there another you can say, wipe away my sin, make it clean? Is there another you can say, you've died for me? No, there's none. But Jesus, he's the one. And therefore you need to trust him because no one else can do for you what he can do. Because he alone is mighty to save. Will you give your life to Jesus Christ tonight? Give your heart to him and experience this salvation that only he can provide you with let us pray our brother Neville's going to come and lead us with this last hymn you're here tonight without the Lord what will you do with Jesus Christ will you give him your heart now I appeal to you Lord I'm a sinner save me save me. If you'd like to talk to myself, I'll only be too glad to discuss the things of God with you. Come tonight, make no delay. Father, write your word upon every heart for Christ's sake. Amen. Neville will bring the last hymn and, and pronounce the closing prayer. Let's sing together. as 273 in the book. I hear thy welcome voice that calls me, Lord, to thee for cleansing in thy precious blood that flowed on Calvary. We'll sing the first three verses of the hymn together. We'll stand to sing, please, and let's uh, think about the words just as we sing along. I hear.